You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Art of History podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Matta, and I'm coming at you live from my holiday break, but by the time you're listening to this, we'll be, gosh, a week into 2023. So I hope you were able to have a restful and relaxing holiday and that 2023 is treating you well. Thank you so much for making 2022 an amazing year for the podcast, and thank you especially for your kind comments on the Edmonia Lewis episode. I'm glad that that uh, was enjoyable for so many people and that you were able to learn about a lesser known female artist. That's like one of my favorite things to do is introduce you to artists who may not have come across your feeds otherwise. Today I'm really excited. Um, while you are waiting for the next part of Edmonia's story, I'm excited to be partnering with History Daily to bring you just a little something to tide you over in the meantime. Now, I know my followers and my listeners, you are all very intelligent people. History Daily is probably exactly what you are expecting it to be. It is a daily show that releases every weekday and gives you a bite-sized piece of history that happened on that day. On each episode, which all come in under 20 minutes, which is just mind-blowing to me, who will easily ramble on for like an hour or more, host Lindsey Graham takes you back in time to a momentous and fascinating event that, of course, happened on the day that the episode is being posted. And it's not just the depth of these episodes that impresses me, but it's also the breadth. These episodes touch on every aspect of history, from military to fashion history, technology, science, politics, government, religion, everything that you can think of that makes up the fabric of history comes up at some point during this show. So today I am really happy to be bringing you two episodes of History Daily to sit in my feed and hopefully entice you to head on over and check out some of the other episodes as well. I'm going to be bringing you two episodes centered around what else but the royals. The first one is about Henry VIII and his famous or infamous jousting accident. And the second is about the death of Elizabeth I and the circumstances surrounding that. But I have to say, as much as these episodes of History Daily serve as a snapshot in time, right? These are a day in history and a specific event that happened on those days. Lindsay does such a fantastic job of tying in not just context, but connecting dots, pieces of the bigger picture that I maybe hadn't thought to connect on my own. Not to toot my own horn, but at this point I am pretty well versed in most things royal history, so that was really exciting for me to feel like I could sit down and get this little bite-sized piece of history and still learn something new. One of my ongoing kind of self-improvement strategies is to find new shows to listen to, and History Daily is definitely in my roster at this point. Whether you're looking to kind of scroll through the feed and find topics that you're already interested in and get some more of that depth of knowledge, or maybe you're looking for a place to turn to learn something new, to turn every day into a teachable moment, History Daily and Lizzie Graham have you covered. Okay, that's absolutely enough out of me. I hope you enjoy these back-to-back episodes of History Daily. Art of History listeners, you're going to hear some familiar names along the way, so I hope that this adds some context to maybe some discussions of historical figures we've had in past episodes. But if you haven't delved into the Art of History back catalog, this is also a perfect way to do that. I would refer you back to the episode I did in November of 2022 called Ghosts at the Palace 
literally, it's about the people that Henry VIII terrorized haunting his favorite palace. Like, it's a good episode. <laughs> I also have an episode called Elizabeth the Early Years, which kind of covers that overlap in the end of Henry VIII's reign all the way up to the beginning of Elizabeth I. So there's going to be some tidbits in the History Daily episodes that connect there as well. Okay, I'm actually done this time. Sit back, relax, and without further ado, I give you History Daily. It's January 24th, 1536, in a jousting field at Greenwich Palace on the banks of the River Thames near London. At one end of the jousting yard, the King of England, Henry VIII, sits astride his horse facing his challenger. The full body armor of both man and beast glints silver under a cold gray sky. Crowd goes wild as Henry raises his lance. Their king is nearly ready to charge. After more than a century of fighting over the English throne, the country is united under the reign of Henry's family, the Tudors. Henry is a popular ruler, a hero of the times. He's handsome, witty, and wise. A writer and lover of music and poetry, he's also a keen sportsman, accomplished at tennis, archery, hunting, wrestling, and his favorite sport, jousting. Henry urges his horse forward as his opponent does the same. Their hooves send mud flying as they gather speed. Henry and his opponent close in, and each tightens the grip on their lances and brace for impact. But the force of the contact hitting Henry is so great that both horse and rider lose their balance. Henry's head thumps sickeningly against the ground, and then his horse lands on top of him. King Henry suffers a nasty wound to the leg and a blow to the head that leaves him unconscious for two hours. He's had two other serious head injuries recently, one when he was struck above the eye at another jousting tournament, the other when he was knocked out after his pole snapped while vaulting a brook. Those accidents left him with headaches, but this injury on January 24, 1536, will change the life of the popular English monarch forever. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is January 24th, the accident that changed King Henry VIII. At Hampton Court Palace, only a couple of hours after Henry's accident, King Henry's wife, Anne Boleyn, knows something is wrong as the Duke of Norfolk steps into the room. Seeing the worried look on his face, Anne's hand flies protectively to her pregnant belly, fearful for the father of her unborn child. The Duke tells Anne that Henry is unconscious and will likely die. Anne feels a sharp pain and doubles over in agony. Anne is Henry's second wife. Henry married her three years ago without the blessing of the Pope in Rome, who would not grant him a divorce from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Henry thought his marriage to Catherine was cursed because she had produced only a daughter and Henry was desperate for a male heir. So with the help of his friend and advisor, Thomas Cromwell, Henry broke England's ties with the Roman Catholic Church. He declared himself supreme head of the Church of England leaving him free to divorce Catherine. 
but Anne too gave birth to a girl, Elizabeth. Still, the royal couple were full of hope that her current pregnancy would provide a male heir, and indeed the child in her belly is a boy. But now, learning that her husband may die, Anne is so shocked that she miscarries. When Henry recovers from his accident, he will not comfort Anne over the loss of their child. He will do just the opposite. In early May, four months after Henry's accident and Anne's miscarriage, Anne is sent to appear before the Privy Council at Greenwich Palace by order of the King. Anne tries to hide her shaking hands as the members of the Council accuse her of adultery and incest, crimes that carry a penalty of death. Anne denies all the charges, but she sees their minds are already made up. She barely notices the grip of the guards as they bundle her onto the barge that will carry her down the River Thames to where she will be locked away in the Tower of London. Two weeks later, on May 19, 1536, Anne will be convicted of treason and her marriage to Henry will be annulled. That same day, she will be beheaded at the Tower of London in front of a crowd of onlookers. The only kindness Henry will show is to order that Anne's execution, the first public execution of an English queen, be carried out by sword, a swifter and often cleaner alternative to the axe. It's October 1536 at Hampton Court Palace, nine months after Henry's accident. Jane Seymour, Henry's third wife, falls to her knees in front of her husband to make an impassioned plea. Henry is in a good mood, laughing and joking, and she believes now is the time to champion the cause of her fellow Catholics. Henry married Jane 11 days after Anne was executed. She's a peaceful, gentlewoman and a Catholic. But since Henry split with the Pope, he's been ruthlessly dismantling Roman Catholic monasteries and churches with the help of his advisor, Thomas Cromwell. But now a series of riots has spread across the north of England as rebels demand the king restore the Catholic Church and remove Cromwell from power. Henry is enraged. He is certain the men behind these riots are aiming to steal the throne. And it does not help that he is plagued by migraines, as well as a leg that has not healed since the horse fell on him at Greenwich. The pain is so bad that he's had to give up the sports he enjoys so much. Jane knows her husband is often in pain and now prone to mood swings. But since he's in good spirits today, she hopes the king will hear her and restore the monasteries. Now, kneeling in front of her husband, Jane keeps her eyes downcast, unchallenging. Quietly, respectfully, she offers that the rebellions may be a punishment from God, angry at Henry, for splitting from the Catholic Church. Henry's round face turns red with anger. He shouts at her to get up, and then he reminds her what happens to women who meddle in his affairs. Defeated, Jane stands, dusts her skirt, and leaves him to his rage. King Henry will not listen to his wife. He will order the leaders of the Northern Rebellion executed, along with anyone linked to the uprising, including villagers, monks, priests, and even noblemen. Many will be hanged, drawn, and quartered, their body parts displayed on stakes as a warning to all other traitors. The following year, in October of 1537, Jane Seymour will give birth to Henry's long-form male heir. Though the child is born healthy, Jane will die 12 days later. Distraught, Henry will lock himself in his room for days. But the tragedy will do little to soften Henry's heart. The horror of his tyrannical reign is just beginning.
It's January 1st, 1540, at Rochester Castle in Kent, four years after King Henry's accident. Thomas Cromwell, King Henry's friend and advisor, bites his lip anxiously. He's alone in his room, waiting for Henry to return from a secret visit to his new spouse. After Jane's death, the search for a new wife for the king began immediately. Cromwell was sure he found an ideal one in Anne of Cleves, a German princess. Their marriage would be helpful in strengthening ties with Germany, one of the only other European countries to have broken with the Catholic Church. Henry agreed to the marriage without even meeting Anne. He'd only seen a portrait of her, painted by his royal artist. But eager to meet her in person, Henry decided to dress in disguise and pay Anne a surprise visit before their official introduction in court. Cromwell is nervous. Henry has been growing more volatile every day, swinging from boyish excitement to tyrannical rage in the blink of an eye. There's no telling how he will react to his new wife. Just then, Henry bursts into the room and throws off his disguise in a rage. Cromwell clears his throat and asks the king how he found his new bride. Henry towers over his friend and advisor and shouts, I like her not, I like her not. Cromwell's spine tingles with fear. Henry has always been a large man, but the jousting injury to his leg has worsened and he cannot exercise like he used to. Instead, Henry eats his troubles away, leaving him severely overweight. Cromwell suggests that Henry give Anne a chance, but the king shakes his head in disgust. He orders Cromwell to help him get out of the marriage. Cromwell explains it's too late. The wedding is supposed to take place in five days, and going back on the deal could cause an incident with their German allies. Henry realizes he has no choice. So as agreed, he marries Anne on January 6th. But in the weeks that follow, he will constantly complain that his new queen is too ugly, so ugly that Henry is unable to consummate their union, a fact that he will use as the basis to annul the marriage six months later in June of 1540. Henry's marriage to Anne and its subsequent annulment is the beginning of the end for Henry's closest advisor, Thomas Cromwell. Cromwell has risen to be a powerful man, but made many enemies, including members of the Catholic Church. After the Anne of Cleves debacle, Cromwell's Catholic rivals see a way of removing their enemy from the halls of power. They play on Henry's moodiness and convince the king that Cromwell has been plotting against him behind his back. In June, Cromwell is arrested. He's stripped of his office and taken to the Tower of London and executed on July 28, 1540. On the very same day, Henry will marry his fifth wife, the beautiful and young Catherine Howard. It's November 7, 1541, in Hampton Court Palace, five years after the King's jousting accident. Catherine Howard, Henry's fifth wife, gossips with her ladies-in-waiting as they pass a hand mirror between them. At first, Catherine's youth reinvigorated her new husband, the king. But before long, it only began to remind him of his own lost vitality. Overweight, unfit, and in constant pain, Henry has been lashing out at Catherine lately, and Henry is a dangerous man when angry. Catherine takes the mirror to admire a new way of dressing her hair when suddenly the ladies fall silent. Catherine looks up to see armed guards entering the room. Terrified, she drops the mirror and it smashes to pieces. As Catherine backs away from the guards, her eyes go wide with fear. She tries to run, but the guards grab her and hold her still. She screams for Henry, but Henry does not come. Catherine Howard and King Henry have been married for just over a year. During that time, his mood swings have only gotten worse. 
Henry's weight has ballooned, and the wound in his leg still hasn't healed. It has to be cleaned and dressed daily, and it smells foul. Making matters worse, Henry is deeply agitated by rumors that Catherine, who Henry calls his rose without a thorn, has been unfaithful. So Henry sent these guards to her chambers to interrogate her. Within a month, the two men that Catherine is accused of having an affair with will be executed, their heads displayed on spikes at London Bridge. And on February 10th, 1542, Catherine herself will be taken to the Tower of London, where three days later, she will lay her head on the executioner's block. In his palaces, Henry's courtiers begin to whisper that the king has gone mad. They do not understand that his erratic behavior is most likely the result of a traumatic brain injury he sustained during his last jousting accident. And in the end, this accident will not just alter Henry's personality, it will take his life. It's late summer, 1546, in the Queen's Chambers at Whitehall Palace in London, ten years after Henry's accident. After executing his fifth wife, Catherine Howard, Henry married another Catherine, Catherine Parr. Today, that Catherine listens in growing horror to Dr. Thomas Wendy, her good friend and the King's physician. The doctor warns her that Henry has signed her arrest warrant, and any moment now she'll be taken to the tower, where she will no doubt be executed. Catherine knew what she was getting into when she married King Henry, a man who has beheaded two of his ex-wives. But to Catherine, the risk was worth it. She's an outspoken Protestant and uses her position as queen to promote those beliefs and do as much good as she can. But her anti-Protestant enemies use this fact against her. Despite overthrowing the authority of the Pope, King Henry never became a true Protestant. His Church of England is not much different fundamentally from the Catholic Church he broke away from, and he's wary of too much Protestant influence in his court. Catherine's enemies convince Henry that she is a dangerous heretic who wants to push her views on him. After talking to Dr. Wendy, Catherine does not run or hide. She goes to her husband's chambers to plead her case. Catherine ignores the cold looks of Henry's advisors, who stand by his side whispering in his ear. She takes hold of Henry's hand and looks him in the eye. Catherine is a clever, educated woman. But today, to compel Henry to spare her, she plays the part of an ignorant girl, inferior to her wise husband and king, who is second only to God. This is exactly what the ailing Henry needs, a salve for his bruised ego. He pulls Catherine onto his lap and kisses her. When the Lord Chancellor comes to arrest Catherine, Henry sends him away. Catherine will outlive Henry, who will die less than a year later on January 28, 1547, at the age of 55. His nine-year-old son, Edward, whom he conceived with his favorite wife, James Seymour, will become king. At the time of his death, Henry is morbidly obese. It will take 16 guardsmen to carry his coffin. He will be buried next to Jane Seymour at St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. Henry VIII was one of England's most significant monarchs. He ushered in a new age for England, splitting from the Catholic Church and overseeing a renaissance in art and literature. But he also turned from a beloved leader to a terrifying tyrant, one who executed tens of thousands of people and bankrupted the country. His decline and the country's all began when he was injured in a jousting accident on January 24, 1536. Next on History Daily, 
January 25, 1971, cult leader Charles Manson is found guilty of a series of notorious murders. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Sound design by Misha Stanton. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Vanessa DeHaan. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. the early hours of the morning on March 24, 1603. An English nobleman gallops through the dark streets of London, his spurs digging into his horse's flanks. Perspiration glistens on the steed's muscular body, but the nobleman doesn't dare slow down. His future, and the future of England, depends on it. The turrets of Richmond Palace loom up ahead, black against an inky blue sky. The nobleman approaches the gates and announces himself as Sir Robert Carey, one of Queen Elizabeth's closest advisors. The guard lets him through. Inside the palace, Carey rushes through candlelit corridors until he arrives outside the royal bedchamber. The queen's ladies-in-waiting huddle near the door, their cheeks streaked with tears. Seeing their grief-stricken faces, Carey realizes the reports he received are true. Queen Elizabeth I is dead. Carrie knows her closest living relative and heir, James VI of Scotland, is 400 miles away in Edinburgh. Carrie also knows that the first person to bring James the news of Elizabeth's death will likely receive a considerable reward. So Carrie turns and hurries back the way he came. But just as he reaches the palace doors, Carrie finds himself surrounded by 20 noblemen, all members of the Queen's Privy Council, and looking at Carrie with venomous disdain. Among them is the Queen's foremost advisor, Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury. Cecil knows where Carey is headed, and he has no intention of letting him arrive. In the weeks running up to the Queen's death, Cecil and the Privy Council created a detailed plan for the peaceful transfer of power from one monarch to the next. Their plan did not involve an opportunist like Robert Carey riding out on his own to curry favor with the new king. So they trap Carey in the palace, where he will remain under the watchful eye of guards. For now, Carey is stymied. His rival Cecil has gained the upper hand in the struggle that will unfold in the wake of Elizabeth's death, as competing nobles seek to preserve their status in the new court of King James. During her 45-year reign, Elizabeth I emerged as one of England's most successful monarchs, winning the people's affection by defeating foreign enemies and by preserving peace in a nation bitterly divided between Protestants and Catholics. But one major shortcoming of Elizabeth's reign will loom large at the time of her death, her failure to produce an heir. Without a clear line of succession, there is no knowing what the future holds for England or her people when Queen Elizabeth draws her final breath on March 24, 1603. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. 
Today is March 24th, the death of Queen Elizabeth I. It's February 1559 in London, 44 years before the death of Queen Elizabeth I. On a cold winter's morning in the Palace of Westminster, members of Parliament have assembled to discuss a most pressing matter, finding a husband for the newly crowned Queen Elizabeth I. Since Elizabeth's coronation last year, the 26-year-old's lack of an heir has become a cause of concern. Without a child to inherit the throne, the future of the realm is uncertain, and after years of political and religious turmoil in England, the last thing Parliament wants is more uncertainty. The troubles began some 25 years ago when Elizabeth's father, King Henry VIII, made England not a Roman Catholic nation, but a Protestant one. Henry wanted a divorce from his first wife, but the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't allow it, so Henry split from Rome, divorced her, and remarried a woman named Anne Boleyn, who later gave birth to their daughter, Elizabeth. Henry VIII's actions sparked a period of religious upheaval known as the English Reformation. Soon, all the powerful positions within the church and government were filled by Protestants, but there were still plenty of Catholics in England who felt persecuted by these reforms. When Henry's daughter Elizabeth came to power in 1558, she tried to appease these Catholics by introducing a more moderate form of Protestantism. And to an extent, it worked. However, Elizabeth's peacekeeping efforts will all be for nothing if she dies without an heir. At present, the next in line to the crown is Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, the Queen of Scotland. Mary is a staunch Catholic. If she becomes queen, England will most likely erupt into civil war. Parliament's solution is to find Elizabeth a husband with whom she can produce an heir. This would cement the Protestant grip on the crown and preserve a line of succession for Elizabeth's so-called Tudor dynasty. So in February 1559, Parliament sends a delegation to petition Elizabeth to consider the question of marriage. The delegates arrive at Richmond Palace, where they kneel before the monarch. Elizabeth is clothed resplendently in a jewel-encrusted gown. Behind her snow-white makeup, the young queen smiles. She thanks the delegates for the visit, but politely declines their request. Elizabeth is fiercely independent and politically shrewd. She knows that if she were to marry, her husband would effectively rule through her, limiting her power. Furthermore, by selecting one suitor, she would likely arouse jealousy in others, thus opening up the possibility of rebellion. Elizabeth believes that to preserve national stability, she must remain unmarried. But it's not an easy decision. Elizabeth is beautiful and intelligent. She has no shortage of handsome suitors, some of whom she develops genuine feelings for. Elizabeth grows especially fond of one nobleman, Lord Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. Marrying Dudley would bring her great joy, but Elizabeth is not willing to jeopardize the security of the realm for the sake of her own happiness. For the men in Parliament, the notion that Elizabeth should reign without a husband is unthinkable. It contravenes their deep-rooted ideas about the primary role of women as childbearers and caregivers. So short of giving birth to a child, many in Parliament want Elizabeth to at least name an heir. In response, the Queen angrily replies that at this present it is not convenient to name a successor, nor never shall be without some peril unto you and certain danger unto me. Elizabeth is shrewd. She knows that by appointing an heir, she opens herself up to plots of insurrection, as factions might rally around her successor and oust her from power. So instead, she remains silent ruling as a powerful, single woman in a world dominated by men. But it will soon become clear that the most imminent threat to Elizabeth's power does not come from a man, but a woman, her own cousin, and next in line to the throne, 
Mary, Queen of Scots. It's February 1st, 1587. Queen Elizabeth I, age 53, sits in a drawing room in Richmond Palace. The Queen's mood is solemn. She has recently learned that a group of Catholic noblemen have been conspiring to have her killed and install her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, on the English throne. Elizabeth hoped that Mary no longer posed a threat to her power. Decades back, following a Protestant revolt in Scotland, the Catholic Mary was forced to abdicate the Scottish throne and flee to England. After she arrived on English shores, Elizabeth had her arrested to neutralize any threat of Mary plotting against her. But while in captivity, Mary became a hero to many English Catholics. In their eyes, Mary is the rightful queen of England. Elizabeth is a Protestant heretic. Soon, whispers of Catholic plots against Elizabeth began to swirl. Elizabeth dismissed most of them, but eventually her spymaster, Sir Francis Walsingham, showed Elizabeth damning letters written by Mary to her Catholic conspirators. In these letters, Mary consented to the Queen's assassination. After reading Mary's treasonous words, Elizabeth was quick to execute the other conspirators, but she's been reluctant to sign Mary's death warrant. Mary is, after all, family. Additionally, Elizabeth fears that killing Mary will only lead to bigger problems, a retaliation from Catholic nations in Europe. But her advisors, including Francis Walsingham, encourage her relentlessly to rid the country of the troublesome Scot. So finally, the Queen signs the order. Seven days later, on February 8th, Mary, Queen of Scots, is executed. Once the axe has fallen, the executioner grabs her severed head, holds it aloft, and shouts, God save Queen Elizabeth. With her greatest rival dispatched, Elizabeth's power seems undisputed and unimpeachable. But more trouble is coming to England. Mary's execution will soon incite a war. It's August 9th, 1588. In the town of Tilbury, on the south coast of England, thousands of troops have assembled to meet an invading army. The 54-year-old Queen Elizabeth parades before her soldiers on horseback, her armor gleaming. And though she appears confident and eager to meet the challenge before her, the Queen harbors nervous thoughts. The execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, outraged the Catholic King of Spain, Francis II. Francis believes Mary is a martyr, who was wrongfully executed by Protestant criminals. Shortly after Mary's death, Francis began plotting to oust Elizabeth and restore Catholicism to England. So in May 1588, he sent a fleet of 130 warships to invade. But before this Spanish armada reached English shores, it was met by England's navy. A ferocious sea battle commenced, and just yesterday, at the Battle of Graveline, a fortuitous wind scattered the Spanish ships and the English forces emerged victorious. The English then fell back to defend their coast from the expected ground invasion. Now Queen Elizabeth rides before her troops, her red hair blazing beneath her helmet. She cries out, I am come amongst you not for my recreation, but for being resolved in the midst and heat of battle to lay down my life for my God, my kingdom, and my people. Her words are met with the rattle of swords and the cries of God save the Queen. Elizabeth waits for the noise to die down. Then she continues, her voice resonant with conviction. I know I have the body of a weak, feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king. An even louder roar goes up. Elizabeth turns to face the horizon, 
where the black sails of her enemy's ships threaten to appear at any moment. But no such invasion comes. Elizabeth and her generals soon learn that the Spanish fleet has limped back to Spain, and England celebrates a great victory over its Catholic enemies. For Elizabeth, the news of the defeat of the Spanish Armada makes for great propaganda. The gale that scattered the Spanish ships is dubbed the Protestant wind and is held as proof that God is on the Protestant side. Elizabeth is carried through the crowded streets of London on a golden litter, a victory procession rivaling her own coronation in terms of splendor and extravagance. The people of England celebrate her as an almost immortal figure, a mythical virgin queen. And the years following the Armada's defeat will be remembered as a golden age for Elizabeth's reign and for England. The theater and the arts will flourish, with figures such as Christopher Marlowe and William Shakespeare emerging as the period's leading literary lights. In 1596, the poet Edmund Spencer writes The Fairy Queen, an epic poem paying homage to Elizabeth. Spencer refers to her as Gloriana, an eternally youthful monarch whose beauty and wisdom are unparalleled. But in truth, by the dawn of the 1600s, Elizabeth's beauty has faded. Her hair has almost entirely fallen out. Her teeth are black and rotten from a lifelong sugar habit. She cakes her face with white makeup, which cracks around the corners of her mouth and eyes. Despite the patriotic propaganda, Elizabeth is not immortal, and as she approaches 70, her health is in rapid decline. She has reigned for over 40 years, bringing peace and stability to a nation beset with religious discord. Many in England cannot envision a world in which Elizabeth is not their queen. And yet there are some who are doing exactly that. The Queen's closest advisors realize that her reign will soon be over. Their attention turns to the question of succession. Members of the Privy Council, men like Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury, and Sir Robert Carey, Earl of Monmouth, begin angling to secure positions of power so as not to lose influence when Elizabeth passes. Cecil begins writing secretive letters to Elizabeth's closest living relative, James VI of Scotland, son of her old enemy, Mary Queen of Scots. Cecil informs James of Elizabeth's condition, effectively lining him up to succeed the ailing queen. But no decisive action can be taken until the queen actually names her successor. And by March 1603, this is looking increasingly unlikely. Elizabeth's condition has worsened. Her throat is now swollen, and she is unable to speak. In her final days, Cecil, Carey, and her other advisors crowd around her sickbed, their eyes red from weeping, their legs stiff from kneeling, praying for the queen to speak. But she never does. With time running out, Cecil makes a move. He suggests James VI as a potential heir to the throne. In response, Queen Elizabeth manages to raise a withered hand in a gesture of approval. Soon, Elizabeth will die childless. But with her successor named, her death will trigger a scramble between her former advisors, all jockeying to secure positions of power in the court of the new king. It's early morning on March 24, 1603. Sir Robert Carey prowls the dark corridors of Richmond Palace, searching for an unguarded exit. Hours ago, Queen Elizabeth I drew her final breath. After her death, Carey intended to ride to Scotland to inform James of his succession, thus currying favor with the monarch and guaranteeing himself a position of power. But his plan was derailed. 
Harry's rival, Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury, found out about his scheme and forbade him from leaving the palace. Cecil is the senior noble with executive authority over the royal guards. If Carey wants to escape the confounds of the palace, he will have to do so by stealth. But lucky for Carey, a familial connection comes in handy. His elder brother, Henry, the first baron of Hunsdon, is also in the palace. Henry stands to gain from his brother securing favor with James, and Henry holds more authority than his younger brother. So he escorts Carey to the palace gates and orders the guards to let him through. On his way out of Richmond Palace, Carey passes by a low window. A woman leans out. It's Carey's sister, Lady Philadelphia Scrope. As Carey rides by, Philadelphia throws him something. A ring, pried from the dead finger of Elizabeth I moments before. This ring will prove to James VI that the queen is dead and that the crown now belongs to him. With the ring in hand, Carey gallops into the night, bound for Scotland. By the time Cecil and the other lords realize he's gone, it's too late. Carey completes the 400-mile journey in a remarkable three days. He reaches Edinburgh in the dead of night. Exhausted and disheveled, Carey staggers into Holyrood Palace and kneels before James, presenting him with Elizabeth's ring and addressing him for the first time ever as King James I of England. Carey's efforts are duly rewarded. The king offers him exactly what Carey wanted, a prestigious position in the new court. James's succession marks the end of the Tudor dynasty and the beginning of the Stuart period, one of the most turbulent in British history. Following Elizabeth's death, England will be plunged into a chaotic era, one characterized by gunpowder plots, civil wars, and great plagues, leaving many in the country longing for the strong, wise leadership of Queen Elizabeth I, which ended with her death on March 24, 1603. Next on History Daily, March 25, 1807, the British Parliament abolishes the slave trade in the British West Indies. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Derek Barrons. Sound design by Misha Stanton. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship, Pascal Hughes for Noiser. <laughs>